Like Lori said, I'm one of the executive pastors here. I'm excited to continue our series in the book of Matthew. The title of my message for the morning is Overcoming the Attacks of the Enemy. Now, I like to offer visual learning aids. So (laughs) usually we have slides for that, and sometimes I'll throw a video in. But today we're going to go old school. I have paper handouts for all of you to have, okay? So could I get the ushers to come back up? I would love to give you each a stack of these and go down each aisle. If you would like a copy of this, raise your hand. If you don't want one, one, that's fine. You're just, you know, less hungry to learn than everyone else in the room. (laughs) Kidding, of course. Some some people are not, they are not visual learners. So if that doesn't usually help you, don't take one. No pressure. Okay. Oh, shoot, I, I need one of those. Usher, can one of you, <laughs> can one of you bring one back up? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Justin. <clears throat> All right. So let me, ex- once you get your paper, I want to explain to you kind of how it's organized so you can follow along with me. You'll notice that at the top, in larger than the rest of it in blue bolded font, we have the category of points. So if I'd say point one, go to the point section, go to number one, point six, likewise. We also have quotes. So some of the quotes I wanna share are in that section. I'll say quote number two, quote number four, and then scriptures are the last. And there's a back page. And unfortunately, the main text for the morning is cut in half, but we'll just roll with it. So. Like I said, I want to talk about overcoming the attacks of the enemy this morning. When I think about um, this topic, one one of the things that I remember, a moment where I remember really becoming aware of the enemy in a whole new way, was when I spent some time in Zimbabwe, in Africa. Went on a ministry trip there, and one afternoon... We were going through the town praying for people, praying for people to be healed, praying for people for all kinds of things. And I encountered this 10-year-old boy who was kind of getting picked on by the other kids. I think he um, may have had some mental challenges. And I was spending some time with him and, and just loving on him. And then after about 10 minutes, I asked him if I could pray for him. And he could barely understand me, but he said yes. And so I start to pray for him. And right as I start to pray for him, his eyes roll back into his head and he faints. And so I bring him to the ground. And then when he gets on the ground, his eyes come back and they are completely different than what I had seen just a few seconds before. They were darker. They were um, they had more anger and more, it just, they just seemed evil when I looked at them. And then he started trying to scratch me. And I knew, oh, wow, I've encountered a demon. So I start praying for him, in Jesus' name, come out, in Jesus' name, come out. And it doesn't really seem like it's working. And then he kind of snaps out of it, goes back to playing with the kids. I do it again, 
because I'm like, I'm going to get this boy free. Like, we have authority in Jesus' name to cast out demons. So I try again, same thing. Right when I start praying, I, I literally would say, Holy Spirit, I welcome your presence. Eyes roll back, faints. Um, eyes come back, starts trying to scratch me. By the third time, I'm like, okay, I'm going to step out in even more faith. When he tries to scratch me, I'm not going to take my hand away I'm, or my arm away. I'm just going to believe that he's going to get free. And third time, same stuff happens, and he goes to scratch me. I don't move my hand away. He scratches me. I've got bloody scratch down my arm. And this story doesn't end well. The story ends with I kind of don't know what to do at that point. I go talk to someone, try to get their advice, spend the rest of the day just loving on this kid. But I don't think he got free from the demon that was afflicting him. And there are plenty of reasons for why when you pray for someone to be delivered from a demon, they're not. That's not my message for this morning. Unfortunately, that'll have to be saved for another time. But I tell you that story because it helps us, helps me remember, and hopefully it helps you remember that we are in the middle of a spiritual war in our everyday lives. We live on the battleground between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. It's, we're not just in a natural world where people are doing their thing and it's chill. Like there is a war happening that we're all in, whether we're aware of that or not. This is why Ephesians 6, first scripture says, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Why do we need armor? We need armor because we're in a war, but more specifically, we need armor because we should expect to be attacked. Now, we shouldn't live in fear of being attacked. Why? Because number one, Jesus commanded us not to. Number two, we have a God who has defeated the enemy and the kingdom of darkness. We are on the winning side, hallelujah, amen. And, um, and even though, even though it still can seem like the enemy is running rampant throughout our world, the way that we should look at that is that he is a defeated foe who on his way to complete and utter restraint is doing as much damage as he possibly can. So we don't have to fear the attacks of the enemy, but we should be prepared for the attacks of the enemy. And the first way that we need to be prepared for them is to know what to expect. Now, the enemy attacks us in predictable, yet creative and ever-changing ways. Why do I say predictable? Because the way he attacks us really is nothing new. It's actually the same way he's been attacking human beings ever since the beginning. And these attacks, they come in two ways. One, the enemy will try to get us to believe that what God says isn't true. Two, what Satan is saying, the, the way, what the enemy, how the enemy will attack us, he'll try to get us to believe that what Satan is saying is what God is actually saying. So the first one, the way the enemy attacks us, what God says isn't true. The second one, what Satan is saying is what God is saying, or what Satan is saying is what is true. So these attacks are predictable. They're the same 
attacks that Adam and Eve experienced. Did God really say? But they're creative. The enemy has found a gazillion different ways to funnel or to uh, wage these same kinds of attacks at us. Tons of different topics, etc. So, overcoming the attacks of the enemy. If the enemy is mainly going to try to get us to believe that what God says isn't true, we know that. We also know what the enemy is going to try to do is to get us to believe that what he is saying is the truth. Then how do we prepare against these attacks? And a second question, what are the weaknesses or the problems, like the trip-ups that we can fall into that make us more susceptible to these attacks? And how can we grow out of those? So that's what I'm going to be spending my time talking about this morning. And when we get to the passage in Matthew, you'll see why we are in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, the, te- the temptation or the testing of Jesus. So a few problems that I want to share that we can fall into before we read that passage are these. Number one, and this is point number one, when we know we are being attacked with lies, but we still give in, our problem is an unrenewed mind. So if I am feeling worthless because I believe that unless I achieve great success, I'm not worth anything. What's happening there? I am believing a lie. I am believing something that isn't true. It's not what God says, and it's causing me to feel worthless. And so what I need to do instead is say, no, Colossians 3 verse 12 says, I am holy and beloved in Christ. And so I reject that lie that I need to accomplish something great in order to have value. So first weakness is when we, we know we're being attacked with lies, but we still give in. Second weakness, and this is point two, when we know the truth, but we don't realize we are being attacked with a lie, our problem is a lack of discernment. So if you were to ask the majority of Christians in the world, is your allegiance first and foremost to the kingdom of God? I imagine that many of them, if not all of them, would say yes. But the sad truth of our world right now is that there is a lot of political idolatry that exists, obviously in the world, but also in the church. And here's a quote from Luke Hazelmeyer. (laughs) Many aren't, I'm reading it because I just want to, I don't want to preach on this. Many aren't even aware that, like the ancient people of Judah who mixed Yahweh worship with pagan idol worship in the high places, so they've mixed political agendas with the kingdom of agenda. This is on both sides. So some of what they believe they're hearing from God is actually something they're hearing from Satan. What's the problem here? A lack of discernment. So the first problem is you, you don't know the truth. Um, you're, or the, so the first problem is that you're being uh, attacked with lies and 
you realize you're being attacked with lies, but you still give in to the lies. Okay, you need a renewed mind there. But the second problem is when you know the truth, but you are unaware of the fact that you're being attacked with lies. And I think I bring up the political example because I think this is often what is happening. Someone is passionate about God and they're passionate about certain political ideologies and they start to mix the two. And yes, God has an opinion about a lot of these matters that we encounter, but it's all too easy to view the kingdom agenda as the agenda of the, uh, the political party that you follow and that you believe in. Because, well, there's a lot of reasons for that. Again, I said I didn't want to preach on this. So um, sometimes the, the problem is a lack of discernment. So with all that said, I want you to be thinking about, we're going to look at the three temptations of Jesus, the three attacks that he overcame, and the three attacks that we all still experience to this day. And I want you to be thinking about for each one, is this a place where I... I'm experiencing problem number one. I know I'm being attacked with lies, but I still give in. Or could this be a temptation where I'm experiencing number two, problem number two? I know the truth, but I'm actually not aware that I'm being attacked. So let's dive in. Let's read the passage. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. So this is scripture number two. We're going to read half of it and then turn over. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word, turn the page, that comes out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him along into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and on their hands they will lift you up, so that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him along to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdom of the world in their glory. And he said to them, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to serve him. So the first thing that we read here is that Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit where he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And check out this quote from David Guzik. It's the very first one. Matthew points out both the barren desert, so the Judean wilderness was and is is exactly that, and Jesus' severe physical condition after such a long fast. It is said that when hunger pains return after such a fast, it indicates the subject is beginning to starve to death. So this is the physical state that Jesus is in. Go on to quote number two. Each passage Jesus quoted back to Satan in this section comes from Deuteronomy chapters six and eight. It is not unreasonable to suppose that Jesus was meditating on those very passages. 
and he fought Satan with the fresh bread he fed on. We should make sure we always have some fresh bread to answer Satan with. Yeah. Crazy. Jesus, all, I never actually realized this until recently, but all three of the scriptures he quotes back to the devil are from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 8. So it's very likely, like, like the commentator said, he was meditating on those passages. And what that illustrates that I want to share before we go into anything more specific than that is that overcoming the attacks of the enemy is not first and foremost a set of practices or tools. It's not a formula. It comes back to relationship fundamentally. That we can do all of the strategies that we learn for overcoming temptation and overcoming the enemy's attacks, but if we don't have the foundation of that being a relationship with God where we're pursuing him, where we love him, where we're receiving his love, then it's probably not going to work the way it's supposed to. So let's get into the first attack. Let's reread Matthew 4, verses 3 and 4. That is scripture number 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So this attack is what I'm calling it, and this is point number four, is the appeal to human desire. Or in other words, the attack of cravings. And this attack is designed to get you to crave something that is not in the will of God for you, either in that moment or ever. So obvious ones that come to mind would be sexual sins and sexual cravings, but cravings in drugs and alcohol would come to mind, um, cravings for gambling, and, and then even way out beyond that. And so this is the attack of craving. Now, the enemy has a tactic, Satan has a tactic that he uses here to help try to make this attack succeed. And let me pause there. This is point number three. The attacks of the enemy are different from the tactics of the enemy. The attack is what you are tempted with. The tactic is how you are tempted. So in this first scenario, Jesus is tempted with food. He's tempted by the enemy to make stones into bread and eat them. But the way he is tempted is through suggestion. The suggestion of the enemy, hey, well, Jesus, I see you're really hungry there and you're even beginning to starve. You could just turn these stones into bread. Have you ever heard the suggestion of the enemy before to you? Hey, you know, I see how stressed you're feeling. You could just do this. Or, hey, I see how hurt you are from what that person said to you. Why don't you just... One of the primary tactics the enemy uses is the tactic of suggestion. And typically what this is doing is the enemy is taking an emotional or a mental state that you are experiencing and then suggesting you sin to satiate whatever that state is. As I've kind of alluded to, an example would be 
um, you know, I'm not feeling appreciated by those that are close to me. So then the enemy might suggest, well, why don't you go get drunk? And, and this is a common way that he attacks. Now, how does Jesus respond to this attack? He responds with truth declaration. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And this is how we should be responding to these kinds of attacks, by declaring what is true in response to the lie that we hear. This is why Romans 12, 2, I believe I have it. Scripture number four says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We're transformed when our mind is renewed. What does it mean for our mind to be renewed? It means our mind is rid of bad beliefs that are untrue and replaced with good beliefs that are true. This is the primary way that as a young adult pastor for my first several years in ministry, I helped men conquer the sin of masturbation and pornography. And to be honest, that sin is something that I wrestled with as a young man. Not as much in the realm of pornography, although I was exposed to pornography at probably about age 12 from a friend and looked at it maybe a couple dozen times in my life. Um, so pornography wasn't primarily my struggle, but I did struggle with that in that arena. And I can remember when I first re rededicated my life to the Lord and said, Jesus, I'm gonna get serious about following you. A bunch of sins that I was engaged in then just naturally fell off. Like I dealt with a lot of anger before that. That anger just fell off of me. But this particular struggle, I did not experience that kind of freedom. It seemed like it wanted to hang around. And it was frustrating because uh, for anyone who has had this temptation and this sin struggle before, there would be all of these ups and downs, all of these victories and excitement, but then defeats and, and shame. And this was about not that picture describes about 90% of my fight against masturbation. And what made it difficult for me in, as I first was trying to get free from this, was that the tools that were being emphasized to me to get free from this were primarily external in nature meaning they were just accountability measures that focused on behavior management. Maybe you've heard of um, software you can put on your phone and your computer where if you go to any websites you shouldn't be going to, it emails a friend. Um, there, of course, were accountability groups where you would, hey, if you, if you slip up, text these group of people. Um, I can even remember as like a 20-year-old living in, in Clifton in an apartment while I was in college, I made a deal with myself that, hey, if I ever slip up in this area, I'm gonna go out and pick up garbage for a half hour on my street. <laughs> and so literally, I would 
you know, I would go out and pick up garbage, and you can imagine all the nastiest kind of garbage in the world is in Clifton. <laughs> so, but, but, so those things are all good. I'm not even, they're, they're good in their right context, but as the exclusive strategy for getting free from this particular sin, I don't think they work. And there's a reason why I don't think they work. Check out scripture number five. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of man? These are matters which do have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and humility and severe treatment of the body, but, this is the key phrase, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. What Paul is basically saying here is, look, if you have the strictest rules that you submit yourself to, even if they keep you from actually sinning, they are of no value to actually addressing the sinful desires that exist in you. You're controlling your behavior, but you're not addressing the sinful desires. And I want to tell you, God's vision for freedom for us in any area is not just that we control our behavior, but that we're freed from those raging desires in the first place. And so, um, and so, that, so that's why these, these external mechanisms just weren't, they weren't, I wasn't seeing breakthrough. They would work for a while and they'd stop working. And then I encountered the identity message. I've learned that I'm actually a son of God, not just a worthless, pathetic sinner that can't do anything right. I'm a son of God and that I can experience mind renewal that will transform me. Not just behavior modification strategies, but mind renewal is actually gonna be the thing that transforms me. And so, what I started doing was identifying the lies that were keeping me in bondage. And the first lie that I remember identifying was the lie that I'm just going to struggle in this particular area until I'm married. That I just kind of have to deal with it and be okay with it until I'm married and then it'll be okay. And I realized I had been believing that. Even though I wasn't consciously aware of that, I had been believing that. And it was actually keeping me from experiencing victory. And so I started declaring, no, I'm not going to struggle with this until I get married. I can be free from this starting right this second in Jesus' name. And I would say that whenever I would feel that lie come on me. And there were several other lies that I was able to identify that really helped lead me towards freedom. I'm not going to go into all of them. You can ask me later if you want to know all of them. But the last thing that got me to a point where I achieved total victory over this area was the, and this was just something that God, I think, sovereignly taught me, um, which he doesn't do very often. I didn't hear it from anybody. But he told me, Luke, if you are resisting this temptation, but then you make the decision, okay, I'm going to give in, right? What I want you to do is declare out loud all of 
the lies that you know are lies and the truths that you know are truths. And even if you still go through with the sin, at least you're going down swinging, is what I feel like you said to me. <laughs> at least you're going down swinging. And so I started going down swinging. Like, like I would, and you know what was crazy? The first time, so literally I decided, okay, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna sin. I did it, okay, I'm just gonna do what he said me to, told me to do, so I did it. And then I was like, wait, I feel free now. Like I, I don't, and so I chose not to, to, to do the particular sin. And that freedom lasted for about a week or two, and then I ended up still giving in, and then I identified another lie. And so every time I go down swinging now, I've got two lies to reject and two truths to declare. And then a third, and then a, and by the fourth one, at some point, about 10 years ago, I um, declared those truths. I resisted temptation in that moment, and then I never fell in that area ever again to this day. So <clears throat> all, I share all of that to say we need to focus less on behavior management and more on mind renewal if we want to see transformation in our lives. And this doesn't just apply in the area I shared. This applies in every area. The primary way the enemy is going to come after us is by getting us to believe that what God says isn't true and by getting us to believe that what he is saying is true. And when we can identify those lies and reject them, we'll see freedom in places we maybe have no hope for freedom. And so this is what, this is what Jesus did. His sin, the sin he was being tempted with was obviously very different, but it was the same kind of sin, that craving, that you should just eat. You're hungry. You should just eat. And so he, how did he resist it? He declared truth. Let's, read, let's go into the second temptation now. Scripture number five, six. Scripture number six. No. Yes. Scripture number six. <laughs> then the devil took him along into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you, and on their hands they will lift you up so that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So if you go, to, go back to the first page and you go to point number six, the attack here is the enticement of the praise of man. The enticement of the praise of man. So, sorry, one second. Van, I need a new iPad. It's not loading my notes. <laughs> okay. So. Um, let's start off with quote number three. The pinnacle of the temple arose some 200 feet from the floor of the Kidron Valley. A leap from there and the appearance of the promised angelic protection would be a remarkable spectacle. So Jesus here is being tempted with 
the praise of man or doing something to garnish the praise of man, to garnish admiration, to, to get for himself positive attention and hype and, and fame. And obviously, Jesus resists this temptation because he would specifically teach against this temptation later on in his ministry. If you look at scripture number eight, it says, take care not to practice your righteousness in the sight of people to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. When you, so when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, so that they will be praised by people. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your charitable giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. We can take this too far and make it religious where we're like afraid of anyone ever seeing us do anything good. That's not Jesus' point here. In fact, just so you know, when Jesus makes extreme statements, he typically makes them in order to change the thinking of the people that, he, that are listening to him. And so the way that we should receive this kind of thing is not, let me use this as a new formula to live life, but how can this change the thinking that uh, the bad thinking I may have had. And so what he's getting at here is this, righteous acts like good works that are done for the sake of impressing people, even though they may still benefit people, they don't benefit us, okay? If I'm doing something for the sake of getting you all to be impressed, it's still possible that what I do could be helpful to you somehow because God is a redemptive God and he cares more about all of our growth and about your growth and about correcting me, but it doesn't spiritually benefit me at all. Why? Because I'm not being motivated by the spirit of God in that moment. I'm being motivated by the praise of man. Proverbs 29, 25, scripture number seven says, the fear of man brings a snare but one who trusts in the Lord will be protected. So the fear of man, it's, this is really just the other side of the coin of the praise of man. The fear of man says this, I have to get people to not think lowly of me. I gotta do what it takes to get them to not think lowly of me. The praise of man says, I need to get people to think highly of me. I need to do what it takes to get people to think highly of me. They're the same, they're on the same side of this, or the, they're different sides of the same coin. Now, the root problem of each of these, whether we're experiencing the fear of man or the temptation to garnish the praise of man, is insecurity about our worth and a lack of trust in what God says about us. If I am not secure in my own worth, that I am good, that that God has made me good, that God has made me valuable, that God has made me holy and beloved, if I'm not secure in that, then yeah, I'm probably gonna try to do things to get you all to believe that I am good and valuable and, and loved. And so this is what kind of is at the root of the, the temptation to get the praise of man. Now, 
to deal with this, some of us who've ex- maybe have experienced trauma around this area of our self-worth, you know, that we might need some counseling, we might need some inner, he- uh, inner healing prayer, some deliverance, but for a lot of us, if we struggle with our own self-worth and we see it coming out in us trying to get people's attention and trying to impress people, if we struggle with our own self-worth, what we really probably just need to do is draw a line in the sand and say, whenever I get a thought that says I'm a failure or that says people don't like me or I'm rejected or I'm not loved, I'm gonna draw a line in the sand and say, no, I reject that lie. I'm loved in Jesus. I'm holy because Jesus made me that way. I'm accepted in the beloved. We need to draw a line in the sand and stop letting the lies that the enemy speaks to us have impact over us. And so I would encourage you, if, if you find yourself falling into that desire to impress people or get people to admire you or whatever that is, um, I, I would encourage you to take some time to write out 10 statements that declare who God says you are. You know, I've already said a few. And then whenever you start to feel those self-degrading thoughts come on, take a second and read and say out loud those 10 statements. I've done this before um, in tons of different ways. The most recent one, I was really worried about something, and so I I wrote out 10 different statements um, about trusting in God and and not falling into anxiety, and, and I would say them every time I would feel the anxiety, and I probably said them 25 times in a single day. And if I was around people, I would say, hey, one second, I'm gonna go to the bathroom. I'd go to the bathroom and I'd say them. Like, um, there's something powerful about declaring the truth in response to the enemy trying to get you to believe a lie. Um, faith comes from hearing is the first thing. And, and when you hear yourself even say some of these things out loud, faith is gonna rise up in you to really believe it and get free from it. More I could say about that. But that's how I'd encourage you to handle it if you're experiencing this second, um, this second uh, temptation. Now, let me get back to tactics. So that was the temptation here, the enticement of the praise of man. The enemy used the suggestion tactic in the first attack, but in this attack, he uses a different tactic. And that tactic is point number two, or sorry, point number seven, he uses manipulation. Go to quote, go to quote four. The devil can use this phrase, it is written also. We can trust the devil has memorized the Bible himself and is an expert at quoting it out of context to confuse and defeat those he tempts. So the enemy manipulates us by distorting the truth and then using that truth distortion against us. And this is typically where we don't have a belief problem as much as we have a discernment problem. Because the very nature of manipulation is that someone is, like if you're being manipulated, you're not aware that you're being manipulated, right? No one's just like, hey, can you manipulate me? No one does that. If you're being manipulated, 
you're not aware, or at least you're only partially aware, and you can't really identify how you're being manipulated, so you just go along with it. So when the enemy manipulates us, what we need to do is, um, or the way that we can guard ourselves from the enemy manipulating us, which, again, this is, I mentioned politics earlier. This is, this is what's happening in politics. The enemy is, uh, as Bill Johnson says, I don't care what side of the political battle you are on, as, or the enemy doesn't care what side of the political battle you are on as long as you're leaving the character of Christ to defend that party. So this is what the enemy is doing. It's all manipulation. It's getting us to, ha- to hate each other and be against each other and be divided. And he's not actually even that concerned about the issues. I mean, he is, and he is for some, but, but really around this, this area, he's just trying to get us to, to be dis- divided and not unified. And so it's manipulation. And um, if we're going to be on guard against manipulation, knowing the truth is helpful, yes, but we really need to increase in discernment. And another way you can say that is we need to increase in wisdom. People who have godly wisdom in them are able to recognize when something's not quite right about this. Yeah, I just, that person just said a Bible verse to me. Yeah, I just, a Bible verse just went through my mind. But I can tell that whatever the agenda is here that is trying to get me to do something um, is not right. This is what Jesus did. He, the Bible, Satan quoted a verse to him. Hey, jump off the pinnacle of the temple because Psalm says the angels will protect you. And Jesus had the wisdom and the discernment to be able to go, no, something's not quite right about this. Why? Because you shall not test the Lord your God. So we need to increase in discernment. In Proverbs, I mean, there's so many things that we could say about how to increase in discernment and wisdom. But in Proverbs, one of the ones that came to mind is one of the things that Solomon talks about is having a trusted friend who you're willing to be corrected by is a way to really grow in wisdom and in discernment. And so I would encourage you, or I'd ask you, do you have a trusted friend that you both receive and seek correction from? Seek is an important word here. Do you have a friend who you ever say, hey, you know I'm pretty passionate about politics. Um, Do you think I'm off at all in any of the ways that I'm thinking? Do you think I've mixed the kingdom with, with any political ideologies? Or a friend who you can say, hey, you know, I've told you about this conflict I'm having with this person, um, and I really feel like I'm in the right, but is there any way that you can see that I'm not? When you have someone in your life like that, and you actually go to them and try to get feedback and correction from them, you increase your discernment and your wisdom, and you make yourself more protected the next time the enemy tries to come and manipulate you. So if you don't have that person in your life, I would encourage you to find them. Third and final attack, go to scripture number nine. Again, the devil took him along to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go away, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Quote number five, Essentially, this vision invited Jesus to take a shortcut 
around the cross. Jesus came to win all the kingdoms of the world and their glory back from Satan's domain. And Satan offers them to Jesus if he will only fall down and worship him. So the enemy will attack us in this way from time to time. And what this attack will look like is the enemy saying to you, hey, I know God told you to do this, but you can actually do this and still get accomplish the same thing. You can actually take plan, you know, this other, you can go down this other avenue and it'll still work out. And so it could be something like maybe you see a path to promotion at your job or ministry or whatever. Maybe you see a path to promotion and you have the idea, well, I could do something that would be, that would get me there quicker. It's a little questionable ethically, but I could, I could do that and it would get me there quicker. What is that? That's the temptation of compromise. And the tactic the enemy is using here to try to get Jesus to fall for this is empty promises and false assurance. When the devil says, I will give you all, well, first off, it's a, um, Jesus, that's, Jesus was gonna get all that anyways, you know? So he didn't need to get it from the devil. But if, uh, do you really think that if Jesus had fallen down and worshiped the devil right there, the result would have been Jesus getting all of the authority and the kingdoms of the earth? No, right? It was a false promise. It was, it was a false assurance. The enemy is the father of lies. And so um, if Jesus had fallen down and worshiped him, which obviously he never would have, but if he, if he would have, thinking, oh, I can avoid the cross and still get everything I came for if I do this, he would have been disobeying God and he wouldn't have gotten the thing that he wanted to get. And that's what the enemy tries to do to us. When, 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 the, enemy, when the enemy tempts us with compromise, where we know God has called us to do one thing, but the enemy's trying to give us a way out that's easier, if we go down that avenue of compromise, we're gonna be disobeying God and we're not going to get the thing that we want to get. We are not going to get the success that we want to get. We're not going to get the love that we want to get. We're not going to get the possession or whatever it is, promotion, etc., upgrade. So I believe that the Lord wants us to be prepared for the attacks of the enemy and to overcome them. And part of us being Able to do that is one being well-established in the truth. Read your Bibles. We have to be reading our Bibles. We have to be taking notes and writing out stuff that we're reading in our Bibles so that it's not just up in here, but we're getting it out into space. We need to be doing all kinds of things to know the truth. But then secondly, we need to be increasing in wisdom and discernment as well so that we can discover the places that we're actually being attacked by the enemy and weren't aware of it. So why don't you stand with me? Father, I ask for fresh grace to fall on all of us to overcome the attacks of the enemy in our lives. Would you establish us in the truth? Would you give us discernment and wisdom to know when we're being attacked? 
And Lord, I ask just for a deepening for all of us of our intimacy and love and relationship with you that will fuel all of this that we've learned. In Jesus' name, amen.